We had been on a nine-week journey through eight different Beatitudes that Jesus pronounced uh, as the beginning of the opener for the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we are coming to the grand finale of the eighth Beatitude. And I hope some of you will remember how we started the journey with Jesus, where in the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 1, Jesus invited his disciples to a mountaintop. It was a test of discipleship in a way for him to differentiate between the crowd or the multitude and the disciples, inviting them to climb the mountains of discipleship with him, a mountain of teaching, mountain of transformation, and ultimately is the mountain of suffering. And you get a view from the mountaintop into Jesus' kingdom and uh, the manifesto of the king, which he is un unraveling in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor, and we knew, we, know, we studied how we become poor. There are three steps to becoming poor. One, we lose everything. Step two, because we lost everything, we will be rejected by everyone. Step three, because we lost everything, because we are rejected by everyone, we will look to God as our only, only source of help, a complete detachment from the world and attachment to God. And then Jesus said again, blessed are those who mourn. We saw three different types of mourning and mourning for our own sins, the, the tears of repentance and the tears of trial that we go through and most importantly, the tears of empathy, tears for others. And blessed are the mourn. He sees our tears. Then we saw, blessed are the meek, and we saw, we knew, we, we studied that meekness is not just about being a submissive and passive character, but meekness is very active in the sense that a person who has every instinct and every impulse under God's control, a person who can get upset and angry at the right time for the right reason in the right way. And that is the definition of meekness or the Greek word we saw, praus. Then Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jesus said that knowing fully well that none of us can be righteous. But if there is an intense desire for righteousness, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We cannot become righteous, but Christ is our righteousness. And we learned that we are not doing good things so that we can become good or righteous, but we are doing right things because we are already righteous in Christ, which is a gift that can never be earned. So that's why Jesus said, not blessed are the righteous, blessed, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst with an intense desire for the right relationship with God, which is the definition of righteousness, and which will eventually propel us to have the right relationship with human beings. That is the outcome of the righteousness. Then we saw blessed are the merciful. We saw that uh, Hebrew word hased, which is basically stepping out of, it's a transmigration of your identity, stepping out of your skin into another person's skin and feel the pain of that person and experience the life as they experience. And that's when we become 
merciful and we do that through interceding for other people and Jesus did that to us for through incarnation and he stepped down from his realm and entered into our body and understood our pain right blessed are the merciful then we saw blessed are the pure in heart Blessed are those whose hearts are washed clean by the blood of Jesus, but also blessed are those who have undivided heart without multiple motive, with a single, singular focused devotion on Jesus and Jesus alone, with the undivided heart. They can tune to the frequency of God in the, in the, in the screen of their heart, the image of God will appear because they will see God. And last week we saw, blessed are the peace lovers, right? No? I was just trying to see if you're still listening or you're sleeping. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not peace lovers. Everybody loves peace. Jesus said, you cannot just love peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. The way Jesus made peace by bridging the gap between God and humanity, he, he asked us to go and, and bridge the gap between the church and culture. And that's how we make peace. And we, then we will have peace with ourselves, then we will have peace with others, and most importantly, we will have peace with God. And now we come to the eighth and the final beatitude. Let's, can you stand with me for the reading of the word today? Let's read this together, Matthew chapter 5, 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 1896, a Polish writer who was a Nobel Prize winning writer called Henry Siemkowicz wrote this novel called Quo Vades. I don't know how many of you heard that uh, word or that read that book, which eventually became a blockbuster movie in 1951. Quo Vades, which was a Hollywood blockbuster, was the largest, the grossing movie of, in 1951. Quo this. It all comes from a document called the Apocryphal Writings of Peter, or the Acts of Peter, which is not considered the Holy Scripture, but it is an apocryphal book. There is a scene which is described as Kova this, which is actually portrayed by a very famous Italian painter, Caracci, if I pro pro pronounce his name, and I'll show you that picture. Uh, it is called Kova this. Can you show that painting? There you go. So the scene and the, the word kova, this really means, where are you going? Where are you going? So the scene is, there is the, uh, a severe persecution against Christianity in the first century, particularly in Rome, where, uh, where uh, Peter is the hero of that, uh, that, uh, that episode. And uh, he was frustrated about the persecution. He wanted to save his life. And like many Christians being scattered, he runs away for his life. And he's afraid of his, for his life. And he's running away from Rome to escape from the persecution. Then on the way, Appian Way, and he sees Jesus coming across him, carrying a cross. So Peter asks Jesus, 
Domine Covardis, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus looks at him and says, I am going to Rome to be persecuted and to be crucified again because you are leaving Rome. There is nobody there. From there, the famous phrase, Covadis. And essentially, it captures the integral nature of Christianity and persecution. There is no way you can escape. There is nowhere you can go to avoid persecution because it comes as a package. The moment you accept Jesus, you carry the cross. It can come from different shapes and forms, but persecution is an inevitable part of Christianity. And Jesus did not mince any words, and he was so honest in his beatitude, saying that, blessed are the persecuted. It is going to come. He could have been like any TV preacher today, right? He could have written a book called Ten steps to prosperity, or he could have told you, you know, your best life now, and that's what the preachers said today, but Jesus was dead honest, looking at his disciples and said, blessed are the persecuted. It is going to come. It is going to come if you are truly a Christian. That's the strange thing about the Beatitudes, the the, the utmost honesty of Jesus. The beatitude starts with blessed are the poor and the beatitudes ends with blessed are the persecuted. And these are the two blessings I don't want, honestly. Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate the blessing. <laughs> I appreciate, I don't mind the other blessings. The blessings of the merciful and the righteousness. And I, 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 I like to uh, try that. But I don't want the first one. I don't want the last one. I don't want the blessings of poverty. I don't want the blessings of persecution. But that's the only, that's, that's what bookends the Beatitudes. There is no way you can penetrate, you know, penetrate inside. You have to either start from the poverty and ends in persecution. The, the honesty of Jesus' teaching, blessed are the persecuted, he said. And if you are a Christian in the first century, the name Christian itself came as a derogatory term. In Acts chapter 19, it's, it's not a name that they went and registered. It's not the name they embraced. Other people called them Christians. In Acts chapter 19, the, the episode is that it was meant to be a derogatory term. Oh, those Christians. Right? Now it is, you know, now in America, we are proud to use that name, Christian. Every American president has to be a Christian or Christian values. And it's a, it's a, it's a matter of pride now, but it didn't start that way. And in the early, you know, in the first century Christianity, the way of the Christ was the way of the cross. And it always, the moment you become a Christian, you automatically became an outlaw. Because at that time, there was something called emperor worship. You have to say, hail Caesar. Caesar is the Lord every single place you go. If you're a tailor stitching cloth or if you're a butcher cutting meat, it doesn't matter. Before you do everything, you have to say, Caesar is the Lord. Emperor was the Lord. He was God. And Christians refused to say that. And because of that, the moment... A Christian became a Christian, he became an outlaw. Christ was his crime. 
And when they signed up after, the, you know, when, you know, you see this beautiful episode where Peter was giving an altar call at the, after his Pentecost sermon, 3,000 people raised their hands and accepted Jesus. And did you know that 3,000 people, when they accepted Jesus, 3,000 crosses were made to order at that time. They were not signing up a card like in a billigram crusade, like you know, so many people raise their hand, go to the connect guard, go to the church, get their hot dog and burger and uh, entering into a community. No. They were literally signing their death warrant. They were basically, they were basically carrying their cross. And the Christians were flung to lions. And they were burnt at stake, and they were tied to dead corpse, and then they were buried in open caves so that the, when the dead body rots and these living Christians will rot with them, that kind of severe torture they were going through, the first century Christians. But even then, the strange thing kept happening. The church was, church was not growing in the book of Acts. Church was multiplying. <laughs> we talk about church growth seminars. We need to have church growth. No, there is no church growth in the Bible. It's only church multiplication. Multiplication is addition in steroid. That's what I heard. <laughs> addition in steroid. It was not people were getting added to the church. The church was multiplied even in the middle of the severe persecution. Why? Oh, there is this, uh, let me read you uh, a Bible verse. Here it is, Acts chapter 5. There is this event where the disciples of Jesus were basically taken to prison because they started preaching. This is the first wave of persecution. And in the end, God delivered them from the prison. Anyway, long story short, in the end, they decided these people are going to preach again. These people are going to really rebel against our authority, religious authority in particular. So let's give them an admonition and just warn them, threaten them, let them go, okay? And then this is what happens. Acts chapter 45, uh, verses 40 onwards. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So these Christians who were basically, you know, imprisoned and take them out and given them a second chance. Don't do this again. But not only that, they went back and did the same thing. It says right on, they kept doing that. But there is this phrase which says, and they went rejoicing that they had been considered worthy, worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were not enduring persecution. They were not even embracing persecution. They were just excited about the fact that they were getting persecuted. Because Jesus said, rejoice. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. And they thought, this is a great opportunity. We, we were considered, we were proven to be worthy. Persecution is not for everybody. Persecution is only for those who are worthy. Wow, can you imagine a first century church, you know, some Christians talking to each other. My goodness, you know, I got persecuted last week. Can you believe that? And the other guy is saying that, oh yeah, I got persecuted too. I was thrown into, you know, this and that. And then another guy sitting there, oh dang, I didn't get any persecution last week. He's so disappointed, <laughs> you know. He's not part of the club. He's not part of the elite club. He's not worthy. Who are you? Move over, <laughs> Right? You know, that's exactly what it says. They, were, they, were, they rejoiced because they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. There is a sense of worthiness because they, for them, this was an opportunity to be Christ-like. See, the idea of Christ in a modern America is very different from the idea of Christ in the first century. The American Jesus is very different from the first century Jesus in so many different ways because the, the Jesus they knew was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. It is a tortured, crucified, bleeding Messiah they knew. But the Jesus we see in Christian television is very, very, very different. And they knew the moment they were persecuted, the moment they carried the cross, the moment they were bleeding, they became like Christ. That's what being Christ-like meant in their world. That's what meant to be worthy to suffer shame for his name. I still remember when I was working with my previous ministry, I developed the Mosaic course, and I was going from church to church, and quite often when they invite me, and before they, they will do an interview, you know, because I'm teaching about world religion, so they don't know whether I'm liberal, I'm conservative. They want to make sure that I don't mess up the congregation. So, you know, they, they, they take me through an extensive interview before they allow me to do the Mosaic course. Anyway, whatever I was doing. So one, this particular church, I still remember, I had this conversation with their entire ministry council or the board was there. So they were asking me questions about the theology of it, blah, 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 all that stuff I know how to answer. But there's one person who was, the, you know, who was actually, he owned a, a cleaning company. It doesn't matter, but he, he's so clear to my mind, that picture. He suddenly asked me, hey, Pastor Matthew, can I ask you a question? Sure. He said, what kind of persecutions you had to face because you started the Mosaic course? And I'm like, excuse me? I didn't really understand what was that. Because nobody has asked me that question. No, he said, what kind of persecution you had to face because you started this ministry, because you are preaching this message? Honestly, I didn't have an answer. I befriended him later. Befriended him later. They allowed me to teach and all that kind of stuff. But I, I just thought, oh my goodness, yeah, there's nothing. Everybody embraced it. Everybody appreciated me. And, you know, it was just a little wild to catch up. But, but I didn't really have any persecution because of this. But that I connected to this verse. And I was thinking, is my ministry worthy to suffer shame for his name? I know my ministry is great. I know it's very insightful. It has transformed many people's lives. It doesn't really matter. Is it worthy? It's not. I'm not saying that I'm looking for persecution here. But it is in, in some way, an evalu evaluation criteria 
of is the ministry really worthy, considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. There are three things that happen to church when it gets persecuted, and that essentially became the reason for growth of the church. As you know, the famous saying of Tertullian, whenever we talk about persecution, we have to talk about that. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood that they shed, these martyrs, the persecuted Christians shed, became the seed of the growth of the church. And there are three things that happen to church when it goes through persecution. First, it purifies the church. You know, quite often, church can become a very stagnated community. Church can become like a nice place where people hang out. And eventually, people from all walks of life kind of, you know, walk into the church and become part of the community, and eventually we can lose, uh, lose our foundational faith in Christ. And that often happens in prosperous countries like America, and sometimes we have to burn the fat. For that, God will take us through a CrossFit training kind of a camp. It's not fun to be in a CrossFit training. I don't even want to go there. I only heard about that. But the thing is that when you go through it, you know, God has to invent a way to burn the fat or to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. And that's what persecution does. When the true persecution comes, only the true Christian will remain in the community. Everybody else will go back to their place. Then God can work with that people. The core of the true Christianity will be formed right from there. God can reform the DNA. So sometimes I really like the churches declining as much as it is growing. I'm only worried about a church which is stagnated. If a church is growing, it's, a, it's almost a, it's a good thing. <laughs> but if a church is declining, that's also a good thing. Sometimes. Because God can bring us to the core people and reform the DNA of that community. And that's what happens in the middle of the persecution. It purifies the church. And the second thing that happens to church in the middle of persecution, it unifies the church or it, it unites the church. And you know this, whenever we go through a painful experience, right, it builds community in a way that, you know, if you go to, in, in a military, the soldiers form a special kind of camaraderie. Their ties between each other can be more strong, it can be stronger than the ties between a family because they experience pain and death together. If you go to a support group like Alcoholics, Alcoholic Anonymous or something like that, there are people who experience the same pain. It builds, it unites them, it solidifies them, it galvanizes them in a completely different way that we cannot make happen. And that's why communities like Jewish community or Armenian community, you know, we have more of them. There is a certain kind of solidarity between those, those communities because they have, as a community, gone through a persecution, holocaust, and genocide in a way that many other communities haven't. And that brings them together in a way. And that happens to church too. And the third thing that happens to church in the middle of persecution is that it deploys the church. What do I mean by that? So I'll, give, I'll read a Bible verse here. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 onwards. And on that day, this is about Stephen. You remember Stephen, the first martyr of the church? After Stephen's death, this is what happens to the church. Acts chapter 8, 1 onwards. 
And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, okay? So the, the church were very happy, and they were sitting around praying and worshiping and all that. Then the persecution happened. Then the stagnated church got scattered to Judea and Samaria. And then I go to verse 4. It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went around, went about preaching the word. Okay, so this community, which was so solidified and galvanized and unified together in Jerusalem, they were sitting there worshiping the Lord. Then came the persecution. Because of persecution, they got scattered. Because they got scattered, the scattered community went around and preaching the word wherever they went. Because Jesus told them very specifically, don't just sit in Jerusalem, because you have to take it from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the world, which they kind of conveniently forgot, then came the persecution, and that deployed them. That forced them to follow the great communication exactly to the same place, Judea and Samaria, then, then right after you see Philip going to Samaria, preaching the gospel. So it deploys the church, so it, it purifies the church, it unifies the church, and more importantly, it deploys the church. And that's what happens during this pandemic, which is a different kind of persecution for the entire world. But Jesus, in any kind of suffering, God can turn that around, and that will be an opportunity for him to deploy the church. All, I, all that to say, that don't be alarmed by what is happening to Christianity in today's world. There are different kinds of persecution. The media is always quick to judge and to say, this is the death of Christianity. This is it. We are going to wipe out Christianity from the memory of the world. But it has happened many, many times before. There is this famous saying by G.K. Chesterton, and I always love it. This is what he said at least five times, and then he describes some five different episodes from his European understanding of Christianity. But the point is, at least five times, the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. It's a British usage, I believe. Uh, in each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. <laughs> believe me, this is not the first time Christianity was thrown to the dog. And in his view, there are only five times, but there are many, many, many other times these dogs tried to eat Christianity but it is always the dog that died. And that's what's happening to the media world. The media was out to get Christianity and including some of the medias that we have, now the media itself collapsed in the social media world, right? You know, because Christianity is, is, is propelled by a, 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 a spirit that is not of the world, that goes beyond persecution. Persecution will only add to purify it, to unify it, and to deploy it. As we close, I also want you to, you know, I don't want to end a sermon on persecution without talking about what's happening in the world. I'm just going to quickly show some slides of Christianity today. Many people, when they talk about Christianity, oh, it's a colonial religion, and, you know, Christianity is almost always this, uh, attributed to the prosperity of the Western world. Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world today. This is the pure research. 
<clears throat> I can share this PowerPoint if you want to. 153 countries, Christianity is being persecuted in an active way. Compared to all other religions, the closest to it is Islam. Then you go to the uh, next slide, there is a BBC article which says uh, it came in two, 2017, I believe. Christian persecution is at near genocide level in some of these countries, the rest of the world in particular. <clears throat> then you go to the next slide. You have uh, from Open Door, this is the statistics they uh, bring every year. This is the latest one. According to which 13 Christians are killed every day. 12 churches are attacked every day. 12 Christians are arrested or imprisoned every day. And five Christians are abducted every day today. This is what's happening to Christianity today. And we sit in our cocoon and we think, you know, we, we blame it on missionaries and we say, oh, Christianity is this, that, and that, and the evangelicals are this, and that. But this is happening to Christianity all over the world. And what are we doing about it? And But this is not going to kill Christianity. And David Curry, who is the president and CEO of, uh, of uh, Open Doors, said this. You might think that this list is all about oppression, but it is really about all about resilience. The number of God's people who are suffering should mean that the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another. Uh-huh. No, no, no. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, in living color, we see the word of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. Oh, it is the dogs that die. It is the dogs that die. Because Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted. When you are persecuted, rejoice, rejoice. I'm going to close this with a story. This story is very close to my heart. <clears throat> the first time I started studying the Beatitude was almost 22 years ago. I was in Kuwait, and there was this house church. As you probably know, Kuwait is an Islamic country. House churches are all illegal, but there was this secret church, <clears throat> and um, I was meeting in my wife's house, in-law's house anyway, and uh, they, the pastor asked me to do a series on Beatitude. Uh, a Bible study on Beatitude. I didn't know what it was because I was not a, I was an engineer. I was a normal person like all of you. I didn't, I haven't gone to seminary. I didn't know anything about any of this. So I picked the book which actually transformed my life. <clears throat> um, this is William Barclay, uh, William Barclay's New Testament commentary. Uh, it was a great start for me. So most of the things you hear has some allusion to what I learned from William Barclay probably around 20 to 25 years ago, right? So anyway, I did this uh, series on Beatitude and, um, you know, the same way each week. And so during that <clears throat> uh, class, there was this family visiting that, uh, visiting that class, and they were not Christians. I, I remember paying special attention to them <clears throat> because um, they were the only known Christians in that, in that group, okay? 
So, and uh, she, uh, they, they were both from a, a couple, young couple, uh, who were from a Hindu, high caste Hindu family, and then they had a seven-year-old daughter called Aishwarya, seven-year-old daughter. So, like in our culture, the kids always stay with the parents, and they are part of the Bible study, whether they understand it or not. They just, you know, play around, and while I'm teaching, and I didn't think much of it. But anyway, <clears throat> sorry, I, I did the class, and I left, um, I left, uh, after that class, we, we left Kuwait and came to Canada. And in Canada, this is uh, now at least five or six months past. And then I, go, I get this <clears throat> uh, phone call from, the, uh, from this family saying that Aishwarya, this seven-year-old Aishwarya, um, has diagnosed with a cerebral, cerebral fever, uh, and she was going to die and she was in the emergency room, intensive care unit, she was going to die, and she said, everybody said, can you pray for her? And we were praying for her from Canada, and we, <clears throat> while we were praying, uh, the parents said, well, while in the intensive care unit she was going to die, uh, she, said, she, she, she said something like this, tell Matthew uncle, she calls me Matthew Uncle. That's our culture, right? Tell Matthew Uncle, <clears throat> Aishwarya has Macarius. They didn't understand what that meant. And they, they thought it, because she has a cerebral fever, she's talking about, you know, she's talking gibberish so or something. So this, <clears throat> they said that to my uh, in-laws who were in the class. And they said, <clears throat> Aishwarya said, <clears throat> Um, I, I should have said, um, um, uh, Matthew, um, tell Matthew uncle, I should have Macarius. And then um, my dad, my father-in-law didn't get it. My mother-in-law didn't get it. They called uh, Joanne and said, uh, hey, um, they say, uh, I should have in the intensive care unit said, Matthew, tell Matthew uncle, I should have Macarius. And Joanne didn't get it either. She told me. I didn't get it. I don't know what she meant. Maybe that's, that's the high degree of fever that makes her say it. Then I went to bed. Suddenly I woke up. It clicked. Oh my goodness, I know what she meant. Because I used a <clears throat> Greek word while I was speaking. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> I have this bad habit of not drinking water. My wife tells me all the time. But <laughs> so <clears throat> hopefully this will make it better. I'm also choking a little bit with emotion because that story is very profound to me. So I woke up in the middle of the night. I realized that, oh my goodness, I know what Macarius means. I forgot, but I know what it means. So this is the word. Can you show that slide? So this is the Greek word I used in that class. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the, those who mourn, the word which is used is Macarius. And I said, Macarius is very different from the typical understanding of blessing because Macarius represents a self-sufficient kind of blessing. And I remember using the country of Kuwait as an example. Country of Kuwait, like many other Middle Eastern countries, is a very prosperous country. 
They have way more wealth than you can imagine. They can buy pretty much anything in the world because if you live in Kuwait, there is no income tax, there is no sales tax because they didn't need your money. Gas is literally cheaper than water because they have it, right? Anyway, but <clears throat> although they are very, very prosperous, it is not a self-sufficient country. All they have is oil. Mm -hmm. If they want to eat something, they have to come to other countries and buy it from other countries. As opposed to India, I used at that time, India is not a very prosperous country. But India can be very self-sufficient. We have our own resources. So I use that as an example in that class to describe. Macarius describes something which is self-sufficient, self-consistent in the sense that, for example, you know, our joy today in the world, we can win a one billion jackpot that they recently announced, but then you can have a cancer diagnosis, suddenly everything collapses. You can have a great promotion and then your wife serves you with a divorce notice, everything collapses, right? And the Macarius is a self-sufficient joy which is complete in itself. That's what I said in that meeting. I taught that class, I forgot that. My wife was in the class, she forgot it. My father-in-law, mother-in-law, all of them were in that class, they all forgot it. This eight, seven-year-old Aishuria, she remembered that. Not only that she remembered it, she was in the intensive care unit and she was nearing death. And that came to her mind. And she claimed on it. And Aishuria lived. Aishuria lived. God delivered her. I don't know where she is. She must be 30 years old now. But <clears throat> um, that's probably one of the one of the stories I always go back, you know, people, as a preacher, something that really gives me a lot of joy, that a seven-year-old little girl remembered what I said, and she applied that in, in, in her life. And quite often I pray, Lord, I don't want to be like Billy Graham. I just want to have at least half the faith of Aishwarya. Just half. That's all I can handle. I don't want to be like Peter. I don't want to run run outside and there are many people who are fleeing California right now. I understand that, okay? It is much easier to live in Texas and Idaho and Nashville, tax break and all that kind of stuff. I understand. But I hear quite often people say, we are tired of California because California is too liberal, it's too against Christianity. Okay, so be it. But then your response is to run away from it? When you pack your U-Haul and go drive all the way... You pack your U-Haul and drive all the way to Texas in the middle of Albuquerque. You will see Jesus coming along. And he will come. He will ask. He will ask, Kowa this. Kowa this. Where are you going? Where are you going? Let that question resonate in your mind. Let's close in prayer. I, I invite the worship team back. Father God. Hmm. We are not going to go anywhere, Lord, because we want the every ounce of the Macarius that you have offered to us through the Beatitude. Lord, of course, we carry our own cross. We are not flung to the lions. We are not torched or we are not burnt at stake, but we have our own persecutions. Christianity has been persecuted in this country in an intellectual level. 
and evangelicals are look like a scum of the earth and the media is propagating a lie after lie after lie. Of course we own part of it, but any time we suffer shame for your sake, Lord, thank you for considering us worthy. Thank you for considering us worthy to carry your cross. And we pray that we will dispense the grace and we pray that all the persecutions that come our way, which is going to come our way, will only purify us and will only unify us and it will deploy us to the rest of the world carrying the gospel, accomplish the great commission as Pastor Scott mentioned very clearly. We embrace that, we take it hard and we carry the message of Christ wherever, whenever we are scattered. In Jesus' name, amen.